the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the newest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who are camped squarely at the crossroads of geek culture and Christian faith. I'm James, and as always, my friends Mike and Brian are with me. Brian, how are you today, my friend? I am doing well. How about you? Tired, but very happy. It's been a very eventful month for me, but I've been having a lot of fun. And uh, a couple of geeky things as well. I'll get to those soon, uh, but really good. I mean, it's been a fun summer. Uh, what about you, Mike? I'm doing all right. How are you, James? Are you still tired and sore? No, from like no. like a couple minutes ago? No, in the last 20 seconds, everything is better now. I've completely rested up. I mean, I took an incredible power nap while you were talking, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know, a lot Miracle. of people take power naps when I'm talking. So, yeah, fair. <laughs> well, we've got a lot of stuff and a movie that I cannot wait to talk about in Film Club. So uh, let's jump to Geek Out. And uh, who wants to go first today? I'll take a hit. I've been uh, kind of by accident enjoying a lot of multiversal kind of things. Uh, I went and I saw Doctor Strange, which was okay. I liked it better than the first one, but as I, I said previously, I'm kind of getting bored of Marvel, which is strange. That was kind of my view on it as well. It was fun. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm with you. I'm kind of, of approached burnout. Yeah. And there was there was something in it. I think it's safe by now to give some some mild mild spoilers Mm -hmm. what they did with wanda really annoyed me because not that it didn't make sense not that it wasn't justified or so forth but they spent this entire tv show you know walking her through her trauma and getting her some level of catharsis and and trying to heal her and then they just undid it all and i was like yeah "Ah, as much as you know wandavision wasn't my cup of tea i kind of liked that they showed us, you know, this this kind of dysfunctional way of approaching your your mental health issues. And of course, not everybody can make a pocket universe uh, to work through their issues. But you know, we we had some things that we could learn from that. But then to just kind of undo it for the sake of another movie that wasn't even about her just felt I don't know. It, it felt like they shortchanged the the show. Very much so. I mean, they give a reason for why she suddenly turned into a big bad that she was studying the dark home the big bad book of nasty and that's fine but show that show that decline her descent into i mean full-on villainy just felt very unearned yeah we skipped a lot of steps in between exactly how long did it take saruman of studying the the ring lore before before he made his descent i mean come on at least give wanda a couple thousand years of character development jeez yeah in Saruman's case, it was no more than uh, like 70 or 80 years because he was still probably on the side of the good during the strike at, at uh, Dol Guldur. Although I do want Hobbit. to add that even before he started to study the ring lore and using the Palantir, I'm willing to bet he was still pretty much a prick. Oh, yeah. There's probably very little question about that. I need to read more of the expanded tales. Well, besides Doctor Strange, I also watched, uh, and I almost watched this one when I went to see Doctor Strange. There's a uh, Michelle Yeoh picture. Every everything, everywhere, all at once. How is that? It's really, really good, but 
it's got this the common failing of many indie pictures that it wanted to be a little edgy and and do things that you can't do in a, a major studio picture so it's like ah, you ruined this this great great movie with dildo jokes and yeah oh, that's disappointing. No. yeah i was i was really unhappy with that it's like maybe i could you know get this on dvd and just edit the parts that i don't like out and it would be a great movie but it was great to see um i believe it was written by daniel kwan not the same daniel um, kwan as uh, as yes, asians represent he's saying oh really yes. no kidding and so it had a very honest and authentic view of the chinese american household um and yo's character was she was walking the line of a stereotype without being an offensive stereotype if that makes sense it's like you recognize oh okay this is what chinese moms are like with their daughters but not so far as to like be a caricature of that okay it was a really really good care all the all the the relationships and the characters were really interesting to watch i just watch it when you're feeling like lots of moral fortitude <laughs> See, it's funny. My eldest went to go see it with her friends and really enjoyed it. And I've tried, I've been trying to find a place where I can rent it, but it's not cheap enough as of the recording of the show uh, to, you know, I'm not going to pay 20 bucks to rent it. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what it's like, but I'm glad that I have a different take here. Yeah. And those bits are like a comparatively small portion of the movie, but they were well, except for one big fight scene, which was, uh, no, I'm horrified. Anyway. All right. Yeah, it was it was kind of horrifying. <laughs> but yeah, I I I I liked it. I've also been reading uh the Night Lord novels by Garen Whitehead, Witted. I don't know how his name is pronounced. Uh and that also covers this whole I'm going to bounce between universes kind of thing. I when I first started it, you know, you know, okay, this is taking place in the modern day and it's a vampire story and all of a sudden it turns into what's that uh, anime genre is isekai we've transplanted somebody into a fantasy world it's like oh this is not what i was expecting and i was a little unhappy with it at first but as it went along it's got kind of a uh ready player one thing going on where he just tucks in all of these pop culture references but the guy's got the same taste as i do <laughs> <laughs> he's like you know what i need a place to put a gate how about cheyenne mountain I'm like, wait, did he just make a Stargate reference? And I'm reading a little further, and it's like, he's putting these things in. And he's like, oh, wait, Star Trek? Oh, yeah, uh, Harry Potter? Oh, my gosh, he, that was a Stargate reference. And I got into book seven, and he finally said Cree to somebody. Oh, geez. So he's just taking a tour of the inside of your brain, isn't he? Pretty much, yeah. I wanted to go back to getting a feed. Was he doing that the entire time, and I just missed it? Because a lot of them are really subtle. And I didn't pick it up until he wanted to put a gate in Cheyenne Mountain. And then, of course, he named his primary technological manufacturing Cybertron. So that kind of oh gave me away. Oh, my gosh. But I don't even remember who recommended those books to me. I wasn't even going to read them. It was, it was like on a list. Somebody, somebody had recommended. I was like, ah, vampires. I'm not really into vampires. But I, then I think Joy mentioned having read, read some of them. Like, oh, well, if Joy liked it. Wait, my Joy or should... a different Joy? I think it was your Joy. I remember right. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm thinking if it's if it's Joyce taste in vampires, I'm interested then. It's a very interesting character and he's got some definite mental issues that come along with being a vampire and being immortal. 
So yeah, I I, I could recommend those. Okay. Stranger Things four. I've been watching that. I guess the the second half of the last season just came out. I haven't gotten around to the last half of it. So yeah, multiverses everywhere. <laughs> I've heard enough buzz about Stranger Things 4 that it makes me think should, I should really go back and finish the 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 third season of Stranger Things. So it kind of fell off somewhere in the middle of that one. Oh. Uh, I'm trying to remember. I think the second season I didn't care a whole lot for. The third picked up a little bit and I liked it better. Uh, and this one, I, I had a hard time getting through the first episode because there was a, a bullying plot hmm. and it was making me deeply uncomfortable. But once I got through that and it picked up and actually started being Stranger Things again, I, I've, I've been liking it. I know the scenes you're talking about, and I admit I fast forwarded through bits of that just because yeah. I didn't want to see that. I saw what was coming. And I'm like, I can't watch this. And I turned it off for like three or four weeks. <laughs> I can't do it. No. And then, yeah, when I got back, into it, I was like, I'll just fast forward through it mm-hmm. and I won't have to endure it because I got enough of that in my jaunt through high school. Yep. Uh, not quite to that degree, but still. Uh, like you were hitting people with roller skates? Oh, jeez. Only geez. twice. <laughs> Besides multiversal stuff, and actually it's still kind of multiversal stuff. I've been enjoying more Star Trek. James, now you mentioned that you didn't care much for the second season of Picard. I thought it was uh, okay. There were some parts I liked, some I did not. I thought that it could have been better. Yeah, I could I could see that. I li- I liked it quite a lot. There were a couple of episodes, and I'm like, mm, not into this. Kid playing young Picard was not good. Like, that whole episode I could have done without. Mm-hmm. Well, I I felt the same way when I saw that same that uh, that one Next Generation episode. Young Picard just really didn't do it for me. Oh, where he and three others were de-aged by the transporter? Yeah, that one. Oh, right. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, it's it's already been done badly. Was there a writer's you know, strike when that one was made? Better than, slightly better than that one. Oh, good. So, improvement. Yeah. Uh, but what I've really been loving is Strange New Worlds. Oh, oh my gosh. I, I didn't put that on my geek out because I figured someone else was going to talk about it, but it has been so good. Just the opening title sequence is... I <laughs> The first time through it, I was like, it got to the end, I'm just like, I'm watching that again. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, music is perfect. The visuals are all... It's like, oh, this is awesome. This is not... The Star Trek that I, you know, grew up with, but it is the most awesome Star Trek for today. Like Kaja will reach for the remote to skip intro, and I'm like, no, don't do that. Not now, not ever. We not, always not watch this, this intro. Yes. Yes. My deepest criticism that I could possibly have for, for this show starts with the fact that the first three or four episodes are kind of like, okay, um, welcome new crew. We're going to go around the ready room and we're going to give our names and our pronouns and our tragic backstories. Okay. We'll start with you, captain. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's kind of what you're going to get. I think when you're not trying to cram all the introductions into the pilot, which is usually the error of most, uh, of most television shows. Uh, so, you know, we kind of, kind of go around the room and get to know everybody, but really it's, it's a good cast. It's a good, yeah. it's a good crew. They've done and a really good job of casting in this series. Yeah. The interactions between Uhura and Nurse Chapel. Yes. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, I want all of this. This, this is the show. These two characters. Yes. 
actually the interactions between fill in the blank and nurse chapel are usually (laughs) pretty amazing i really enjoyed the scenes where we've had uhura and chief engineer hammer together Mm -hmm. Uh, you guys caught up on the latest episode i am not no okay i will not say any more then i haven't been able to watch the latest uh, I will say, I think my favorite character is uh, Captain Pike's hair. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's who's up for an Emmy. See, and this is something this will, will not pay off for probably five years. But in my Traveler game that I'm running right now, uh, which you will hear eventually as I'm recording, uh, at some point somebody dropped that the uh, the officers in the Imperial Navy could be ident- their rank could be identified by the height of their hairstyle. We had a, a lieutenant. He specified that he had this uh, pompadour, and so the the higher rank you are, the more hair you get to have. And it's like Captain Pike is an imperial captain. <laughs> tall hair. I've seen some memes about the hair that would probably make him a admiral. <laughs> Fantastic show, though. I'm 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 loving every minute of it. Uh, even the we're going around the, the table introducing each other because it's hard to do those scenes. It's hard to do a, a briefing table scene. And yet they have done a fairly good job of keeping them interesting and interactive. Mm-hmm. What I've enjoyed is that we get several scenes where as the crew are talking, they're doing it around a dinner table, usually in captain Pike's quarters. Mm-hmm. And that brings about a real sense of, of community, but also that they're not just people on a ship I mean, because you don't eat with strangers, people you don't like. You eat with family. You eat with friends. You eat with people that you were close to. And those scenes help convey that very well to the viewer. And the fact that these people are living in in close proximity to one another. And they're, they're going to form family. They're going to form community, a tight community yes. living on that ship. So, yeah, that's have been some really good scenes. I agree. I've enjoyed that they've also found a way to incorporate humor into the show and i mean when we first hear about enterprise bingo i thought that was great yeah speaking of humor in science fiction i've also been watching the orville which i put under the star trek category because as we know the orville is just star Trek. it's just exactly but i will say it's no longer the doing star trek better than star trek because strange new worlds has that crown right now i've caught the first Uh, couple episodes of the third season of orville um, I'm curious about your take on it. It's not doing as good a job this go around as it did the first season of uh, being even-handed. Mm-hmm. I think that we're in a slightly different political and social climate right now, and I think uh, McFarland is is wanting to to be a little bit more definite in what he's saying. Yeah, kind of leaning more into the gravity of the situation and the new world they live in, and leaning back a little less uh, on the humor that's going on. And I think, I, I think the, the balance that they're striking there is pretty good, but just like the, have you seen the, uh, the tale of two topas yet? Uh, no, not yet. Okay. You'll, you'll see what I mean when you, when you watch that one, because the first time Topa's plot came around, uh, we talked about it and it's like, they really struggled with what they thought was the right thing to do. And I thought that they, they missed the ball in some places where they were, not accounting for, hey, you know what? Other people's cultures are also important. And I think they just pushed the other people's cultures are important even further to the side this time around. And it's like, ah, you handled it better the first time, I thought. Um, but you'll you'll see what I mean when you watch it in the, the audience. Okay. Those who have seen it, I hope, understand what I'm saying. 
If not, go back and listen to that where we talked about the Orville last time. I see what you mean, at least in the, like the first three episodes I've watched. It feels like to me, though, that he and the writers are trying just a little too hard. That mm. they're trying to se- not separate from the first two seasons, but they're leaning more into the, the, the gravitas. And it doesn't quite feel like the same show as uh, what I enjoyed the first two seasons. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, it might just be that the first few episodes are that way and it'll even out as it goes. But I mean, it's kind of disappointing to see because now we're heading into the third season. This is the season where shows have usually have found their stride. They're firing on all cylinders. They've got it figured out. And so to see this change is jarring and kind of disappointing. Yeah, it it might have a little bit to do with the uh, change in in production, uh, though. Oh, that's right. They did because, switch to Hulu from Fox, right? Yeah, was it on Fox or was it? I don't remember. Uh, but yeah, ha- having changed their their home and they have different different masters now that might be leaning on them to be to tone down the the humor. And it could just be, hey, you know what? We have to deal with this this disaster that we set up at the end of the last the last season, and we can't take quite as lighthearted a tone. As we were before, because these people have uh, have got some stuff to work through, and it, it is still it's still got some humor. It's 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 a little toned down. So that's that's what I've been geeking out to. Lots of lots of sci-fi. Uh, James, tell us about what you've been spending your time with. Uh, like you guys, I've enjoyed Strange New Worlds a lot. Uh, Stranger Things four has also been really good. Looking forward to catching the second half of it. Um, but not long ago. Uh, we headed back up to Kansas to see family, and I thought that the kids were finally old enough that a trip to the Kansas Cosmosphere was due. So we took a day, went up to Hutchinson, and had a really great time there. I know both of you guys have been, but when was the last time you guys went to the Cosmosphere? Oh, it's been a long time. Well, it has to be more than 11 years since... Uh... That's when I moved out of Kansas. I'll, I'll never forget it, though, especially because that gyroscopically mounted G-Force machine and the guy who was operating the machine that day decided that he would take it as a test of my manliness to see exactly how hard he could spin me in that thing. And I've never eaten that restaurant's food again since. <laughs> like, it just, I will never forget the feeling in my stomach for like the next like four hours like four hours <laughs> I didn't know they'd let you go on that thing well I guess I'm special hmm uh, I think the last time I went was a, a youth group trip that I was driving a van for so it must have been somewhere in the vicinity of 2002 mm-hmm. I think I was on that trip with you but for those of our listeners who weren't born and raised in Kansas I wasn't uh, <laughs> the Cosmosphere <laughs> is a, a space museum and education center located in Hutchinson. It's got over 13,000 uh, space flight artifacts. It's one of my favorite places to go to. I think it's the largest collection outside of Cape Canaveral, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. It might be in the world um, when you combine the U.S. and Russian artifacts. Anyway, it's got a lot. Yes. I mean, right Un- when you underrated. walk in, they've got an SR-71 Blackbird hanging from the ceiling. And that just kind of sets the tone for everything you're about to see. Um, you know what? Now that I think about it, I've that was a different air and space museum where they made me nauseous. I've never actually been inside this thing. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I guess I'm going to have to drive back. 
I guess so. Uh-huh. But all three of the kids really enjoyed it. And of course, Joe and I loved it. They're always updating their exhibits, and they included a children's area. Uh, it was a good start. It had a lot of things for the kids to enjoy, a lot of uh, hands-on experiences. But I was like, okay, this is really cool. I'd like to see you do more with it. Of course, went to go see a uh, a movie in the IMAX dome, and we saw a film called Safari about um, Africa and about herd animals. Growing up, I thought that that's how all IMAX movies were shown. And so I can remember going to an IMAX in San Antonio, thinking like, all right, here we go. And then sitting in this theater, that's just you're sitting close to a really big screen. And I'm like, well, this is incredibly disappointing. So we'll be back. Do I recommend a trip to Kansas just for the Cosmosphere? Probably not. But if for some reason any listeners find themselves in the, uh, in the Wichita, Kansas area, go check it out. It's a great way to spend a day. You won't be disappointed. I went to the uh, JPL Museum here in Los Angeles and was disappointed. I'm like, oh, well, this place is lame. The Cosmosphere is way better. <laughs> yeah, we were kind of spoiled. Yeah. But, you know, then again, we were growing up in Wichita. So, I mean, something good had to happen to us every once in a while. <laughs> uh, but moving on uh, to other fun experiences, uh, a couple of weeks ago, as I took my daughter to our very first con. Uh, we went to the Dallas Fan Expo. How'd you like it? It was a lot of fun. We just went on Friday, and I got us a pair of day passes, which I ordered early enough so that they were very affordable. And uh, I mean, honestly, the most annoying part about the entire day was trying to find parking in downtown Dallas. I so, have never tried to do that. <laughs> well, there were two annoying things. One was the parking, and two, once we got into the building... Finding out where the actual entrance into the con was very confusing. They did a very poor job of putting up signage about where it was, where you're supposed to enter. Basically, I just started following masses of humanity as they were walking towards it. Kind of everyone was in the same boat. We think this is the right way. Other people are walking this way, and so are we. There's one person at the front saying, why are all these people following me? I'm just trying to find a bathroom. <laughs> and the line for that stall was just around the block. So that's... <laughs> uh, Once we got into it, though, we spent most of our time in the vendor area, uh, the artist area. And also they had a maker space where there were people who just make stuff. Cool. Uh, the best part of that was the people who, I forget what they are called, but... Basically, they make their own screen-accurate R2 units. Oh, is it the 501st? No, this is separate from the 501st. Are they now, nerds? The 501st were there, but this was just a group of people who make astromechs. Oh, I have seen them. They are the loveliest nerds alive. It I is know, just right? fantastic. <laughs> there was an absolutely beautiful R2-D2 just wheeling around, domes turning, lights, sounds, all of it. And I I looked around. I was trying to find the guy who was controlling it. I couldn't see him. So I walked up to the R2 and said, hey, can I get a picture with my daughter? And it gave me a little beep, and it posed right beside her. I would say that that's agreement. Yeah. And then I gave my daughter the camera because I wanted a picture with him as well. <laughs> I posted a couple of photos on the Geek at Arms Facebook page, along with some of the pictures of the cosplay that was there. There was a panel going on while we were there. Most of the panels, of course, were happening on Saturday and Sunday. But we sat in for a couple of minutes on a panel being run by Ashley Ecclestein, who is the uh, the voice of Ahsoka Tano. 
Oh, how was that? In the Clone Wars. It was okay. I say we sat in, but really we just kind of stood at the back. Because one, it had already been going on. And two, my daughter didn't have much of an interest in that. So I wanted to move on. I mean, she was looking at everything else. And I could tell she wanted to get to looking at the artist area and the vendors. So there are a lot of, of course, with any fan expo, there's going to be a lot of stars there. I mean, that is their shtick. The only ones I can remember off the top of my head were uh, the four hobbits from the Lord of the Rings, uh, Jason Momoa, Katie Sackoff. Half of the con was their tables, the lines for that. I did not have any interest in that, and that's perfectly fine. But I did get some great photos of great cosplay as they were going to and from that area. So I wasn't really on the lookout for any swag or anything like that. There was a gentleman who was selling beautiful, segmented, 3D-printed dragons. And my daughter saw those and fell in love with them. So I'm like, all right, well, let's get you one. Lots of comic vendors, toys, dice, Funko Pops. So, so many Funko Pops. (laughs) Anyway, I never have really seen the draw of those. I mean, some people love them. There's a reason they're literally everywhere. But uh, I I look at the size of my dice collection and I realize that I have no room to criticize anybody who's into Funko Pops. (laughs) So just (laughs) there was a large dice vendor there. I forget who they were. Something Norse inspired, but they had a lot of really nice dice and dice towers. And I was sorely tempted, but I thought, no, hold off. Also because I had to pay for parking in downtown Dallas. But anyway, I did find one of the many vendors who were selling old toys and and more. And he had the little plastic buckets of loose toys of different types and genres. And in one of them, he had a bunch of little plastic Godzilla figures. I've got Godzilla in the exact same type that I got somewhere else a long time ago, but this time he had a lot of the different kaiju. $5 a piece or five for 20. So So which five did you get? (laughs) um, Mechagodzilla, Rodan, and Gyrus, Mothra, and Gigon. Okay. I'm I'm a little surprised you didn't go for a Gamera, but those are all solid choices. No Gameras. Because that's not a Godzilla property. Correct. It's not part of the whole like Godzilla verse. I did not know that. What I had read is he, that Godzilla and Gamera were actually such close buds that they didn't want to actually present any sort of film where they were fighting. Um, they had proposed a couple of buddy cop movies, but the scripts never went anywhere. That explains it. There you go. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll see myself out. Sorry, folks. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> oh, one thing I should mention, I ended up getting a patch of what the personnel of Babylon 5 wore on their uniforms, the stylized shield with the five and a sword through it. Look, I figure if you can wear a Starfleet pin during a congressional hearing, you can wear a Babylon 5 pin to work. (laughs) But I'd be sad because I'd be the only person who got it. (laughs) But I was happy to get this patch, and I'm going to stick some Velcro on the back, put this on a bag that I own. And uh, so, yeah, I think we'll definitely go back next year, especially if I can get a one day pass uh, for as reasonable a price as I did. Hopefully this will be something that she and I will continue to enjoy together. Uh, Finally, I want to talk about a new trilogy that I've really been enjoying. Uh, It's called the Bloodsworn Trilogy by John Gwynn. I did not realize that it was an unfinished trilogy when I started reading the first book, The Shadow of the Gods, but... That book came out in 2021. 
the second book, The Hunger of the Gods, came out just a few months ago. So I feel good about how soon we might get book number three. Won't be any waits of Jordan-esque lengths this time. You hope. Yeah, I see that he just friended both Jordan and Rothfuss on Twitter. So that's... that's Shut a, your that's mouth. <laughs> but... The series became highly recommended from some of the fantasy reviewers that I follow online. So I decided to give the first book a try. And it is Norse-inspired fantasy. So a genre I've never really checked out before. I found myself really enjoying it. Now, the world that the author has created is a very dark world. No, not dark. It's a very hard world. But it conveys that without it being grimdark. People aren't dying left and right. Not everyone is an evil, horrible person. And there is good. Uh, there is honor and friendship. Uh, strong sense of family and community are present within it. But it is a world of monsters, of raiding parties. It's a Viking world. So, you know, it's not going to be gumdrops and rainbows. Although Candyland Viking Edition, I think, would sell really good on the shelves. I would love to see the designs for this game. Uh, you, essentially, you just put all of the candy with beards. And you're done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so gross. Oh, no, <laughs> you've landed in the Lutfisk barrel. Go back to start. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the characters are very well written. And his sense of pacing is also very good. Overall, a really well written series. Uh, which I, I would recommend if anyone just likes general fantasy. It doesn't even have to be like Viking inspired. It's one I definitely recommend giving a read. And the third book will hopefully be out in the next year. So, and that is going to wrap it up for me for this geek out. What about you, Mike? Well, recently I had the opportunity to sit down with a couple of other gamers in our community uh, to do an actual play podcast. And uh, the two of you may have seen it in our stream. Um, have you had a chance to listen? I'm about halfway through. I have listened and thoroughly enjoyed it. Listeners, you may have heard a couple of references to the lost episode of Geek at Arms. And what this is, is we, we had tried to do an experiment of an actual play podcast and we had gotten some people together and the audio was just the audio was just gone. Like there's, it was unsalvageable. And so as much as we were really sad about that, it did open the opportunity uh, to get together with Grant, Peter and Jenny and run an episode of Roll for Shoes. And it was just so much fun. I just kind of wanted to bring it up with you guys um, because you've actually played the adventure, but I think it was really interesting how, and I want to keep it spoiler free for Brian, but how different it actually came out. Because we had all the same ingredients there, but the, the play style was so different and uh, just the scenarios wound up being completely different. I thought it was really interesting and, and a lot of fun. So it was, it was great to sit down with them. And the next thing that's on my geek out is uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, which I tried out at PAX. And I thought my first impression was that it was it was a fun beat em up game. And upon sitting down to get to play it with my family, it is a really, really <laughs> amazing beat em up game. Like it is so worth playing. This game has been played just about every other night 
at my house since we bought it on the Switch. All of my kids, all of us have had such fun playing it. Yeah, we beat it and then we're, you know, we're we're going back through and we're doing some of the challenges and we're trying to level up all of the turtles. Well, not just the turtles, because we also got Casey Jones and Splinter and April O'Neil. I've had to work in the evenings. I've encouraged my family, like, hey, I'm not at home, but the four of you continue to play. I can remember one day I picked up the kids from daycare and they're like, Dad, Dad. Last night, we beat the final level. Guess what? Guess what? What, what, what? We got Casey Jones. Oh, my God. That was just the highlight of the week. <laughs> well, have you have you actually played Casey Jones? I have actually played Casey Jones. The special attack there is just brutal. It's amazing. I love the animation. If you hold the attack button down instead of just pressing it, like it'll charge up a special attack. With Casey, his hockey stick turns into a golf club. He's wearing a golfer's cap. Yeah. <laughs> which he tips to the person who he just hit for a hole in one. Like this game doesn't take itself seriously in the best possible way. It has just enough self-awareness to make it silly and fun, but actually still a good solid play. You can tell the people who made this game weren't just like fans of the original cartoon. They must have lived it, breathed it, had the T-shirt and the posters on the wall because there were so many things that are just straight out of the original cartoon that are included in this from characters to set pieces, bits of lore. It was so much fun. Just they would show up on screen and just like, oh, 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 hey, I remember that. They at least at the very least did their research. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's funny because I, I've thought for a while that that the Ninja Turtles were were ripe for for use as a four player game. And I didn't know why we hadn't seen anything. And, and there was one for the Wii that wasn't reviewed very well. And it was you know, kind of one of those things that once you've done the first level, you've kind of done everything. But this the controls are pretty tight. The gameplay is fun. It's challenging without it being like super hard or anything. So I just thought it was a I thought it was a great adaptation. I loved the mechanic they included that it used to be once you're down, you're down. You know, he'd sit in the ground and shell shocked and there's a life gone. But that once your your hit points are depleted, one of your fellow players can come over and like feed you a slice of pizza. <laughs> over the course of like 10 seconds. And if they can do that, then you're back up with some of your hit points restored. Usually what we'll try to do is if somebody's seriously down and somebody's completely refreshed, we'll try to charge each other's, each other's life. You hold down your, your L button and you high five the other person. And it'll, you know, it, we can do that when there isn't much combat. We've had a hard time trying to get the other turtle back up once they're down just because it does require like i don't know five seconds or something yeah. without getting hit and generally we play two player maybe three i think it must be easier with a four player but you'd think that but when it's this family <laughs> not so much fair enough so the other thing on my geek out and i guess the question do we want to talk about obi-wan well i only put it off because i saw it was already on yours okay Same. then let's Same. then let's talk about obi-wan um, I thought it was I thought it was good. I thought it was entertaining. It was it was what I wanted to do with my evenings when I turned it on. I don't think that it was particularly amazing. It was far from flawless. Um, some of some of the episodes, it begs you not to think about them too hard for too long. But I thought it was definitely I thought it, 
thought it was definitely entertaining with the exception of of one thing is of little leia she transcended entertaining and she was just the most amazing part of that show as mm-hmm. i thought her performance was just stellar and seeing her there makes seeing leia in a new hope just it justifies the entire character and the uh, what they're just like yes i totally believe that this is the same person mm-hmm. you really do mm-hmm. and to find a child actor who is able to to do that was really amazing yeah, too. he knocked it out of the park mm-hmm. to show somebody who has insight but absolutely no wisdom <laughs> was, <laughs> was really something like wow you are super smart and you don't know the first thing outside your palace this is fantastic mm-hmm. My worry was that she was going to go over the line of being, how, how precocious do we want to make this child? But she just kept raising the bar like that. If anyone asks, I'm your father. Grandfather, maybe. What? Nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she was grand. I'd, if I watch it again, I will watch it definitely for her performance. What do you guys think about it? Pretty much the same. as I was. Uh, I was looking forward to it every week, but it didn't. You know, knock my socks off, and yeah, just watching the character development, the the portrait of Leia was the the best thing about it. Um, we don't want the Obi Wan show; we want the little Leia show. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I think I think somebody you know at Disney understood that really because I was like, okay, well, we saw how the audience reacted to Baby Yoda, mm. um, and so we know where the heart of this show is going to be, and it's. We know everybody likes Obi-Wan, um, and so he's a good vehicle for for telling the same kind of story again and just getting everybody to fall in love with another character. And that seems cynical, but I don't care. They can be as cynical as they want as long as they give me something I like. <laughs> of the three Star Wars series we've had so far, this has been the one I enjoyed the most. I wondered what direction they were going to take it. And then after the first couple episodes, I was like, oh, essentially it's how Obi got his groove back. Yeah, <laughs> I like how he portrayed the the character of you know what's happened to him on. I like the whole idea about how he's he's lost his connection, most of his connection to the Force. He's just been hiding out on this desert planet, watching a ten year old through his binoculars. Yeah, because that's not not creepy at all. Yeah, yeah, not creepy at all. But glaring plot holes aside, <laughs> which there are many. But then again, as you pointed out to me one time, Mike, this is also the same genre that brought us the line, somehow, Palpatine returned. <laughs> so, I mean, you have to go into it expecting that. I'm, you both know me, and you both know how much I've always loved Star Wars. Um, mm-hmm. Most of it. Brian, you've talked about Marvel movie burnout. I think I'm kind of getting that way with Star Wars. Yeah, I think the... Uh... The lack of it, the the fact that the the oeuvre was so small, was one of the the strong things that Star Wars had going for it. The more of it is, more of it there is, the less all of it is worth. Yeah, and we kind of hit that point sometime at the end of the expanded universe. At least for me, is that there were so many Star Wars novels, so so few of them that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. That yeah, it. it I still loved Star Wars, but I didn't feel the need to love all the Star Wars. Yeah. There's no reason anyone, anyone has to love anything about the Crystal Star. <laughs> wow. I 
can we just edit that out? I no, suddenly... I stand by that oh, statement. Why are you hurting me still, James? Sand. It's like it's it, you're just twisting the knife in the wound. Twist, twisting the lightsaber in my gut. But don't worry, I will survive. Well, just remember, Mike, friends stab friends in the front. <laughs> which one was that? I'm trying to remember which one that was. You don't have to. Just stop now. I probably should. Oh, I, I think this is after I stopped reading. Yeah. What did that for me, though, Mike, about the lack of quality and becoming dis, um, disenfranchised with it was when the Yuzan Vong novels hit because it just it stopped feeling like Star Wars. I'm like, OK, the characters in it have the same names as characters I know and love, but this doesn't feel right. Well, that's one of those things. I think that Yuzhang Vong was something that came out of a writer's room that sounded like a great idea on paper. Like we've got to we've got to find something that is a threat to our new Jedi order. What would be more threatening than biological creatures from outside the galaxy that aren't affected by the force? And then everything got weird. And only parts of it sound like it was written by a 10 year old. So they love pain. They're pain aliens with spikes, and they've got living spears that turn into whips. See, when Luc Besson read that line, they're pain aliens, and he's just writing a bunch of them, scarfing down bread. It took about three minutes before he realized, oh, wait, that's not what's happening. <laughs> I get that joke. <laughs> but speaking of Luc Besson, let's get to this episode's film club. And of course, this was our host's choice because we want to film club of movies we just each personally love. This episode, it's my choice and I chose The Fifth Element. So can I ask, why did you choose this film, James? Because it's The Fifth Element. <laughs> <laughs> you really had to twist our arms to watch it again. I, mean... I know, right? James, what do you want to choose? The Fifth Element? Do you guys even want to watch that again? And Brian's like, I'm already watching it. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to, to believe that this movie came out in 1997. Yeah. And I can remember watching it in the theater. And I'd never seen any of Luc Besson's work before. If you had, then this would have been totally unexpected anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the one that came out right before this was The Professional mm -hmm. with Jean Reno and Natalie Portman. Honestly, the only thing that these two movies have in common is... Gary Oldman. And when you're talking about Gary Oldman, that's not really having very much in common that's because true. he vanishes <laughs> into his parts. Like it's funny, I I somehow missed this film when it was when it was out in the theaters, and it wasn't until I met Kaja and she was like, "You haven't seen the Fifth Element. You have to see the Fifth Element." And I'm like, "Okay, cool. We'll watch your favorite movie. You watch my favorite movie." And I was just blown away by this film. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the response everyone has when they find out that someone else has it. You haven't seen The Fifth Element? You have to see The Fifth Element. It's like schedules get rearranged. A person gets trapped. You have to watch this movie. You don't have a choice. Where did you even get these restraints on your couch? <laughs> <laughs> Never you mind. But when you look at some of the other science fiction movies that had come out around this time, Gattaca, Event Horizon, another Aliens movie, you know, they're not exactly feel-good movies, especially in the 90s. There were a lot of, like, where the future is painted in a rather dystopian view. Bassan's take that the future is very funny is refreshing. It's great because it is funny, and there are elements of it that are bleak, and there are mm -hmm. elements of it that are glorious. There are elements of it that are pristine and elements of it that are gritty. But unlike so many other movies, they don't wash the future in 
subdued tones. That's very colorful. That's for sure. There is it's nothing, bright. and it's vibrant. There is nothing subdued about this film in no. any way. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's one of the things that that makes it somehow stylistically work is that it is so over the top in every way, and it doesn't apologize for all of these over the top things existing in the same universe. I mean, there's there's no there's really no real world building going on here. It just throws you into scenario after scenario and asks you to keep up with it. And yet as much detail as there is in each of these scenarios, it doesn't it doesn't feel dizzying or disjointed. It just leaves more to discover with each subsequent yeah. viewing. Because you really have no idea from the get go what kind of movie this is going to be or where it's going to go. I mean, it opens in like 1930s Egypt, and the most memorable line. Well, there are many memorable lines, but the one that comes out of the top is Aziz Light. Aziz Light. Part of my regular vernacular now. <laughs> Thank you, Aziz. Much yeah. better. And I'll be honest. I thought Luke Perry was going to be a much bigger part of this movie. So did he, probably. <laughs> but it hits the ground running. I forgot what the runtime is, but I mean, it's it's fast paced, but it also has I mean, it has quiet and slow moments. It fits together so well, gives you just enough time to catch your breath before you're running on the next scene. Exactly. So do we want to talk about the film craft? One of the things that really struck me about this film is the timing of these scenes were really so tight. And we talked about it hitting the ground running. Even the banter is so quick that it doesn't really let you catch your breath. And there's a lot of rhythm to the back and forth in this dialogue. And, and it all has to be just synced up with one another. And somehow this just doesn't stop the whole time. And I think that the best example of this was that hallway scene where we're introduced to Ruby Rod. And it is just an incredible example of precision timing, rhythm, and flow. And I think a lot of that comes down down to the editing. I, I don't know what the, the editing process on this film was, uh, but in scenes like the, the opera fight scene, it was really clear that we're cutting with the music all the time. And we didn't have to... I kind of doubt that there was, there was somebody, you know, counting it out, you know, on the set. At the same time, it was it was done with the the cuts, the editing, hmm. but it's it's really fabulously done, flawless uh, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, um, except for the very end where you've got the big guy standing in the back for like ten oh. seconds. Like, <laughs> why isn't he hitting her? This is the time when he should be hitting her. I know what we're doing here because I've seen this movie a hundred times. <laughs> I noticed that this time too. Like he he should at the very least be rearing back some sort of huge heavy weapon or something. But yeah, the but then again, these are the lighter told him to stand here yeah. because we need a reflector. Well, these yeah. are Mangalores, so they're not exactly known for tactical superiority. Somebody told him go over there. Didn't tell him what to do when he got there. Mm -hmm. You talk about not knowing what the editing process looked like, but I'll I'll tell you one tidbit that I that I'd had. I I listened to a couple of of interviews with Chris Tucker, and he talked about the hallway scene being really difficult because he, it took them over a hundred takes to get it right. And part of what it was is that he and Bruce Willis did the audio recording separate. 
so that Luc Besson could mix it together and the two of them could dialogue together, sort of, you know, if thrilled, you know, his dialogue. <laughs> but Luc Besson wanted a certain type of rhythm in the audio. And so once he got that, then they had to film the action to match it. And that had to be incredibly difficult. But the result was so good. Yeah. At least they didn't try to do one of those uh, oneers. We're going to do this entire hallway in one shot. Oh, oh, that would have been gosh. impossible. Yeah, the editing was something that I wanted to talk a, lo a little bit about because they do dialogue in editing in a couple of points in this film. Like, especially mm -hmm. when they're opening up the box with the stones and it's like, well... This this crate is empty. And then you cut to Lilu who's laughing. And then we have Zorg who's saying, would somebody care to explain? And we cut back to Lilu. So they're dialoguing with one another, despite the fact that they're the dialogue is for the audience, not for each other. And those moments, I think, are just brilliant. He uses that style in a couple of different scenes and each time to great effect. In this particular scene, the priest said, we're saved. Back to Zorg. I'm screwed. Yeah, <laughs> it, it feeds off of each other just perfectly. Yeah. Well, on the uh, the bit where the the ship is taking off, when we're cutting between the uh, um, that process and Ruby's bad behavior, uh, and what else was going on? There was a third. Um, and the, and the conversation the, uh, with Zorg. Yeah, the conversation right, with the... and his underling, and or Zorg's about to blow him up. And Bilbo Baggins is sneaking onto a ship. Sorry, the monk is sneaking onto a ship. <laughs> no, priest. you're right. The first time. Oh, okay bravest little hobbit of them all i could have gone another decade without thinking about that <laughs> <laughs> this time through i really wondered like there wasn't really a whole lot of a point to having cornelius on the ship he didn't contribute anything other than telling them where the temple was at the end he wasn't a viewpoint character he was there because he thought he needed to be there <laughs> i think that is exactly the yeah. point i mean that, that's good we hired him home we're gonna put him in more of the movie mm-hmm <laughs> all right do we want to talk about the costume design well we've talked about how colorful and vibrant this movie is this could really be included in the practical effects but the look of the diva plava laguna just still amazes me mm. and one little tidbit i found was that when she comes out and she starts singing the look on corbin's face is real because Bruce Willis, up until that exact moment, had never seen her in full costume and makeup. Oh, no way. They did that to him a couple of times. The first time he sees the divas, when he encounters Lilu for the first time, and she literally drops into his cab, and she starts speaking the that weird divine language, that was also Bruce Willis's first time hearing it. <laughs> I have a feeling they did take one. A lot of the shots in this movie are take ones. Yes. Like the bit when he's getting mugged. And he's you can see he's just kind of really trying to hold it in because I don't think he'd ever seen that guy before either. It <laughs> really is a nice hat. <laughs> Speaking of being included, give me the cash has <sighs> worked its way into mine and my wife's vernacular. <laughs> I mean, that is such a great character developing like we we don't really know who corbin is at this point and we get to see him under what would be a pressure situation with something that is still absolutely absurd uh, like look at the gun that guy is holding like that has to be like 15 guns that basan just glued together <laughs> and then right. put spikes on it for no reason 
give me a bunch of magazines and spikes and, a, <laughs> and hot glue. Doesn't this thing have to have a barrel? That's an afterthought, sure. Yeah. Hey, hey, Mel Gibson, do you have anything left over from Mad Max? Yeah, we need it. <laughs> oh, and make sure there's a yellow button that, that's integral to the plot. Because I want the guy holding it to be able to go, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Who is this guy and what is he doing now? I, I, I hope it's good things. <laughs> hope he's living his best life. <laughs> like getting back to some of the, yeah. the other design, uh, the costuming is in some ways, you know, when I was looking at this in, in 1997, I thought this is just kind of absurd. And some of it is. I don't know what those hats were that the priests were wearing, but that's okay. So, yeah. See, they're meant to evoke the Towers of Hanoi. No way. Game where you got to move things from one. That's what they look like to me. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I mean, and that's now canon because I decided. That's, I mean, that, <laughs> I accept it fully. Geek at Arms, determining canon. That's right. The The costume design actually went to a really famous uh, fashion designer. And so I think that really kind of helped bring in an over-the-top sense of this style or these various styles that are all just kind of cobbled together. And it's, yeah, I don't know. The costume design was just so fantastic and fantastical. You know how you will see entertainment broadcasts or magazines, and now the latest uh, designs from the fashion show in Prague and Milan and so on and so forth. And you look at this stuff and you think it's outrageous, it's weird, it's nothing anyone would actually wear. Well, in the future, that's the stuff you get at Target. Exactly. <laughs> and it's it's just weird enough to feel, in most cases, to feel right. I mm -hmm. don't know that I'd recommend anybody wear a plexiglass skirt with a thong. But I mean, that that uh, apparently the French disagree. Matthew Kasovitz, who played the mugger, uh, was also in Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets 20 years later. He's been in quite a few things. Mm -hmm. Amelie, Munich. But he's still working. Good on him. I did want to say one thing about the writing. And uh, apparently, Luc Besson started writing this when he was 16. Look at the stuff that I was writing when I was 16, and there was no way I would put it on the screen. <laughs> This is not draft one. I'm just going to bet. Oh, no. <laughs> Still. Well, I, will, I don't think anything that I wrote at that time would have matured into the fifth element. I, I will say this about just the overarching structure of this film. I really feel like this is a fantasy film at its heart. Oh, you're absolutely mm -hmm. right. Like, yeah. It's not hard science fiction where we're looking for some sort of... It is a big ball of evil that's headed for Earth that needs the four elements plus the fifth element to to make it go dormant again. Like this is the setup for a very, very bad fantasy novel or a really, really great sci-fi show for some reason. I was thinking about that very topic, the fifth element. So this is what happens when a weird Frenchman watches Captain Planet and thinks, I can make this sexier. <laughs> <laughs> He's not wrong. We had a recent discussion on the Christian Gamers Guild about uh, fantasy. We started with uh, fantasy movies. I guess our, our chaplain is planning on an article on the topic. And we listed a few of them, you know, the, the basics, uh, Labyrinth and Willow and so forth. And then he says, okay, well, we talked about fantasy movies. What about sci-fi movies? And somebody brought up The Fifth Element. And I thought, that really belongs in the first category. That's still a fantasy movie. Yeah. It's a fantasy movie that just happens to be set in the 23rd century. Just like Star Wars, it's a fantasy movie in space. 
Give it time and it'll just be regular urban fantasy. <laughs> and we'll all be wearing shaped pieces of plastic on our heads. Clear, of course. <laughs> Let's talk about practical effects. So we've watched a couple of movies, which include some pretty impressive looking skylines, including futuristic ones. I'm thinking specifically of the skylines we saw in Blade Runner. And I got to say, the ones that are shown in this movie are just about my favorite. Instead of being uniform and identical and gray, they're highly detailed with a lot of character. Like, this is actually how the New York skyline could look in the future. That was my takeaway from it. It took a team of 80 model makers five months to build the models and the skyscrapers and the city blocks for oh, this wow. film. According to them... Actually, what was the most time-consuming of that was the windows of the building because they didn't just put, like, a piece of plastic there and color yellow. Like, they would insert furniture, blinds, <sighs> light boxes, tiny pieces of flat art so that everything had depth and feeling like, you like okay, this is an actual living city that you are viewing. Wow. Well, we, we talked last time, our last film club uh... – the Hudsucker Proxy, we talked about the buildings, and this is the same people. This is Mark Stetson again, uh, and he wanted the Hudsucker buildings for this movie, but they were being used, as we mentioned before. Mm. And so he did that entire job again. <laughs> okay, um, I guess the pressure's on for me to pick another Mark Stetson movie for, for the film club. All right, fine. I'll, I'll look into it. <laughs> and that's interesting about the uh, the interiors, because this is the problem that we still have with CG buildings where, okay, do you model all of that stuff inside? Because that's going to take a long time. And something that they developed was this uh, shader that the window is still just a flat window, but the shader senses the camera and gives you this faux perspective view of the inside with furniture and so forth. Because it's the same problem. It's like, oh, do we take the time to build all of this stuff? And now we've got a shortcut with this interior shader. Of course, you don't get quite as much variation and, and as good... Uh, light response with that as you would if you actually modeled the stuff inside so it's a question of how long is the shot actually going to be lingering there and if you're zipping past for a second and how much budget do you have to put into it right and that's one of the nice things about a movie this old is it's before they realized that they could uh, have 50 people criticize every single pixel of the frame and so you know what they built is what they got and they didn't have this this cycle of we're going to run this visual effect shot into the ground until it looks awful because everybody has to have some input you know once you build the building and you put the little things in all of the windows like hey if you want us to update it it's going to cost you a million dollars that's what you should do is charge by the pixel <laughs> well that's something that we're trying to do is start saying okay we're going to charge you for the work we're actually doing instead of doing a flat bid and you get as many revisions as you want mm. because it's the revisions that are costing the vendors so much money and driving rhythm and use out of business. But if the producer has to say, okay, well, if I want this change, how much is it going to cost me? That will significantly change things. And I think you'd actually wind up with better effects because I can, I can point to shots in movies and TV shows where I can say, uh, yeah, that decision was the producer version one of the shot. I bet looked much better. Interesting. It's one of the things talking about scrutinizing every pixel of, of these things. I watched this film in on dvd for pretty much every prior viewing and i watched it on high definition this time 
And I was actually kind of afraid as to what it was going to look like once you once you can see the granular detail, because I, I watch Star Trek The Next Generation now. And as much as I love it, I I see the makeup rather than the illusion that they're trying mm -hmm. to present because it, it wasn't made for this medium. I mean, it was mm -hmm. made for standard definition televisions in the 90s. And I'm like, what is this going to look like once we can see everything? And I was so impressed on how it held up. Well, you you don't have a digital starting point here. Even for for next generation, you know, it was shot on film, but it was written down into ultimately a digital format. But you just didn't have the the level of of fidelity in your film necessary. And as you said, they weren't shooting it for that. They were they were counting on D one to soften things. But this was designed for you know being shown on the silver screen, big where people can see the grain. And so you don't have that assumption that, okay, well, we're going to crunch this down until we can't see the detail anymore, like you did for television in the 80s and 90s. So I think it's it's not surprising that it would hold up a lot better because it was never intended for such a low resolution viewing as DVD anyway. Mike, my uh, moment of cringe and watching those old Star Trek episodes and that quality was... Uh those spandex uniforms that we got in the uh, first couple of seasons. <laughs> oh, those are, those are not any good. Oh, we'll talk about spandex later today. <laughs> Back to the practical effects. And this once again is a nod to the set builders and the level of detail they brought to everything they did. The lobby of the hotel ship of Floston's paradise was just a joy to behold on a huge scale was beautiful. I'm like, okay, yeah, this feels like a futuristic lobby uh, on a spaceship. And I thought later, man, that just must have been an even bigger joy to blow up. <laughs> <laughs> but I also want to talk a moment about the aliens. Oh, now, wild. Yeah. True. I mean, we're in the middle of the 90s, so most of the aliens that we see on screen are either going to be Star Wars or Star Trek based. And most Star Trek-based aliens, let's face it, are humans, but with different ears, noses, foreheads, etc. Yeah. The only and, other thing we had going on was Farscape. And that, you know, it was props to them. But yeah. Actually, we also had Babylon 5, which bought some very unique aliens. But once again, we also got a couple that were humans, but with hair that looked like they stuck their finger into a light socket. <laughs> <laughs> This entire republic spends most of its funds on hair gel. <laughs> oh, goodness. Wow. What would the national expenditure be? Anyway, moving on. No, we can't yeah. do that. No. <laughs> the aliens that we get from the Monachiwin to the Mangalores, Diva Pava Laguna, they're so unique. They look real. Like they can just walk down the street right next to you. You don't even think about it. And they're so far removed from anything we'd seen in other properties. One thing that I read was that the animatronics that they used in the Mangalores, from talking to the, the very active eye, Mangalores have very active eyebrows. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's really how they express emotion. But once again, vibrant just added to the overall feel of the movie. So much of the, the unique look of this movie can be attributed to artwork uh, from the French cartoonist. Let's see if I can get this right. Uh, Jean-Claude Mez... Messier. Messier sounds great. I don't Messier, know. Um, I don't know. Who Besson had long time been a fan of. Besson actually paid Messier to do visuals for this movie. Oh, like, oh, really? Yes. 
and Bassan would later adapt Mazer's long-running science fiction comic book that is very well known in Europe. I think the, the comic was just called Valeria, and he turned it into the movie Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. It's actually the, both of the characters' names. Um, I can't remember the, the woman's name now. Valerian and Laureline is the name of the comic. Ah, uh, right. And there was a series from the, the Empire of a Thousand Planets. So it was like a four-parter or five-parter. I read the graphic novel. It's pretty cool. But was there anything else that we were on to say on effects, practical or otherwise? Let's get on to characters. Let's get to characters. Let's get on to our favorite meat popsicle. <laughs> Again, that one <laughs> is part of our regular vernacular at our household. <laughs> what I found really interesting about the character of Corbin is that he's shown to be the only male character who is portrayed as both manly and capable. I mean, we're given a odd but over-the-top and villainous Zorg, a brave but shy and stuttering priest, and his even more stuttering sidekick, bumbling military leadership. Ruby Rod we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> I think the, the president is uh, reasonably capable. The president's um, an idiot, and you don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> he's surrounded yeah. by incompetence, mm -hmm. but he knows enough. He's wise enough to listen to Cornelius. Yeah. To give him his 20 seconds and to follow his advice. You know what? Okay. He knows what he's talking about. You said something else I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's not really character-based, but I want to get to it before I forget. The way that the president says, sir, it'll take five minutes. You have 20 seconds. There is so many mentions of time. So many things are time-based in this movie. You, know, you have 20 seconds. You have three minutes. 20 minutes left on the bomb. Now you have five seconds. Am I the only one who noticed that? Uh, no, it's actually a, uh, a trademark of the song. Um, if he gives you a, a timer, not always, but at least a couple times in every movie, the timer will be correct. When he says to Cornelius, you have 20 seconds, if you count it down, he actually speaks for exactly 20 seconds. Nice. The only one I'm wondering if that is true is when Corbin has that bomb and he tells Ruby, count to 10. Oh, no. I mean, there's... Now I'm about to go back and count that. No. That it, there is... Well... But it, it seems to be re uh, reliant on Ruby actually counting. It's not going to go off until he reaches No, no, no. 10. I, I watched that part. He says, count to 10 from the moment he threw it and it hit. And from the moment it hit, I'm like, wait, okay, go. One, two, three. I wasn't counting on Ruby. He was all over the place. Anyway, moving on. Back to Corbin Dallas. I mean, this really did not seem like a stretch for me seeing Bruce Willis in this role. Uh, you have a, a wisecracky, tough hero who has good comic ability. And that's it's kind of his brand. Right. Yeah. This is this is what Bruce Willis does best. He's very good at the deadpan humor. It's very good when he's told you are fired. And he just stares at Mr. Chin. Thanks for lunch. <laughs> yeah. I'm not complaining yeah, about this being very Bruce Willis-y. Bruce Willis was great for this role. And it was a fun character. I did like how much of his character we got through just the props in his apartment, though. Oh, my gosh. That is so rich. And I was actually a little disappointed when the, the general came in and started pointing things out. It's like, we want to just see it there and understand he's a highly decorated former military officer because we see he's got a Medal of Honor. You don't have to hit us over the head with it. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. In that first phone call with his friend about the cab, he's kind of going through his bric-a-brac and we see a photo and we see that, you know, there's a picture from a marriage. And then he's, he's like, oh, found a picture of you. How do I look? Horrible. His almost empty fridge. Mm -hmm. With two empty plastic cases and a box of Gemini croquettes. 
I like the cigarette machine. Right. It's, it's while spouting positive phrases about our goal is to quit. You get a cigarette that is like 20% cigarette, 80% filter. I had missed that. And then he spends the rest of his time looking around, trying to find the whole reason he's even going through all of his stuff is that he's just trying to find a match. Right. To which, of course, we call back at the very end of the movie. Mm -hmm. Of course, his little apartment also opened up many questions for me, which is, okay, when he gets out of his bed, a new one wrapped in plastic appears. What happens to the old mattress? <laughs> well, I think that's one of the, the beauty of this film is that it really doesn't beg you to ask the question, how does this all work in real space? Because none of it can possibly really how, work. How does the shower drain if it's got its refrigerator underneath it? Right. Mm -hmm. Like all of this delightfully makes no sense. And I don't really want it to. The only time I worried was when the shower, when he shoves Lilu in there and you're like, wait, is she about to be crushed? <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's one of those things when they come out of the... the when, when the general and major iceborg <laughs> and major iceborg gets shoved into the fridge and they're they're covered in in frost and he then motionless and he takes the mission like my eldest like wait did they die no you see them later on but it's yeah none of this works but it works in the moment so it's lovely yeah you could ask questions, but because of how it's presented, you just go with it. Well, you there's always something going on, so you don't have time to think about it. Yeah. yeah. It goes back to that, that pacing that we were talking about earlier. I really do think that going back to Corbin and showing his ability as far as stripping those around him, you go to the – this is one of my absolute favorite scenes in the entire movie, and that says a lot, is the negotiation scene. <laughs> Mangalores have taken over the ship. They've got the captain. There's that one stuttering crewman. We've seen him in a couple of other things. And he's he's sitting outside. He's he's just trying to load his weapon, which I found funny when I was younger. Now I look at him like he's literally just staring down the barrel of this thing, shaking it. We're sending someone to negotiate. Corbin goes in and, of course, boom, right between the eyes. Anyone else want to negotiate? Where did he learn to negotiate? Back to the president. I wonder. wonder. <laughs> Again, another bit of editing that was just fantastic. I know my man. He'll calm things down. <laughs> to I mean, if we're going to talk about characters, can we talk about the Lumini Lectaria by Lumini Chai Ekdat Depsabat? That's my favorite character. Easy for you to say. Yeah, right. Okay, that, that whole thing's your name there. Maybe we should shorten it down just a little bit to Lilu. Mm-hmm. Okay, then we'll just stick with Lilu then. All right. Can we talk about Lilu? Lilu Dallas <laughs> Again, another thing. Part of the vernacular. That is yes. Part of the vernacular. Multi pass. <laughs> I, I will neither confirm nor deny that whenever we're having a certain type of meat for dinner, either I or my wife will go, chicken, okay. chicken, good. Yeah, we do that more, probably not as often as you, but yes, that is also. Okay. Why does she have so many of the quotables when she barely speaks English in this film? Well, that is kind of an interesting thing, is that 
her performance, I mean, she's speaking, it's not gibberish to her and it's not gibberish to the director. Like it's a simple, it's not even really a language. I mean, it's 400 words that they've put together so that she could speak foreign sounding dialogue. But man, does she deliver on it? Mila Jovovich completely sells the concept of being an immortal being of unimaginable power who is totally naive of the world around her. Well, when you've been sleeping for a couple thousand years, there's a lot to catch up on, apparently. Mm. That's why she's going through the dictionary. I mean, seriously, if you tried to do any sort of networking based on what you understood in the 90s, where would you be at? It's probably a little bit much of what I was doing in my job this last week. But anyway, I also think that in terms of the physicality of the stunt work that she did, particularly in the fight scene, was really quite a task. I think that prior to The Matrix and The Phantom Menace, I thought this was my gold standard for what a crisp, coordinated fight should look like. Hollywood is up to the ante since this time. But what she put into her role, both in the dialogue and into the physical performance, I thought was really something incredible. I kind of wish there was something more to say about her character, but she doesn't. Uh, Go ahead. There's an arc there that I enjoyed when she's she's first. You know, she's going through the uh, encyclopedia and she sees the martial arts and she's excited about this. She thinks that Bruce Lee is cool. <laughs> but then after her experiences, after she has actually had to fight and she she looks up war and you can see it is breaking her because now that she's got she's connected this action to what it actually means, what it means to people, what it's going to do to people. And I thought that was interesting because, because if she had been in the W's before all of that. She just said, hey, cool, weapons, guns, you know. Let's she would have looked at Corbin and gone, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it also says something about the scale of it. Once she's exposed, I mean, certainly she had to have known what war was 2,000 years ago. But once you move it onto the industrial level, that had to be quite a shift in the trajectory of human destruction. And at least that's yeah, well, where it, that's where it struck me. Yeah, I think she knew what it was, but she's a brand new person. Yeah. She has no experiences. She has knowledge encoded in her DNA, but it wasn't until she came through it and she experienced pain and she experienced loss that it drove mm. drove into her, oh, hey, this is what this is, all of this stuff I've, I know, and now she understands it. I think I like your read better. I got a feeling from her of almost like, what have you humans been doing to each other? Yeah. The wars that she, from 5,000 years previous, are just as uh, brutal, just as uh, pain-giving. You know, hacking somebody up with an axe is no less awful than shooting them with guns. Uh, in some ways, it's more because you have to be right there doing it. Right. And so I think, really, it's a matter of she hadn't experienced it. She's not the person who went into uh, the sarcophagus 5,000 years previous. She's... Mm been reconstructed and her her confidence you know i'm the supreme being i'll protect you is it's a false confidence because she hasn't ever needed to protect anybody because she's a brand spanking new person with no experience hmm. i'm open to being wrong about that but that's the way i read it no i think it's a good read once again lots of questions could be asked about this movie and it's fun to speculate mm -hmm. and frankly i'm kind of happy that all we got is what we got 
Right. Again, if there wasn't, if this was so cut and dry as to why she reacted like this, Brian and I wouldn't have this discussion as to, yeah. well, what is it that's the motivating well, that also, reaction? And this movie doesn't have time to jump deep into the lore of the fifth element, the supreme being. How many times has she or the concept of the fifth element defeated the ultimate evil? It's supposed to happen every 5,000 years. Okay, how many times before now has this happened? Well, we've only got one moon. Oh, now we have to. I see, I see what you did there. And for the purposes of this movie, we don't need to know that. And if they had tried to go into any of it, it would have just bogged down the story. Yeah. As we know, we like movies with questions. <laughs> Speaking of questionable. Oh, well, I mean, that's my cue, isn't it? <laughs> uh, unless there was anything else to say about our perfect being. Let's go to Ruby Rod. <sighs> He is such an energetic, vivacious, over-the-top character. You can't not talk about him. There's a lot in this character that is that is just a ball of way extra stereotypes. On one hand, it's a little cringy. And on the other hand, those stereotypes are deliberate. And they're also polar opposite juxtapositions, like balled up into one character. You have an obvious externalized displays of feminized appearance and the stereotypes of feminized behavior when exhibited by men. And it's juxtaposed with a super hetero hypersexuality. That's, I mean, while still staying PG-13. And both of these concepts are embedded entirely throughout the role and are even infused into the into the femininity and phallic overtones of the very name Ruby Rod that it's, yeah, there's just a lot going on here. There was something that I really appreciated about him that I I never really looked at until the last time I viewed the, the movie was we have this character who's in the middle of an absolutely insane situation. And he's obviously scared out of his wits but he is continuing to do his job the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he has an opportunity to get the heck out of there and, and survive and protect himself. But he's like, no, you know, I'm, I'm still on the air. I'm going to get closer, find out what Corbin is doing so I can report on it. I'm going to see if I can try and see something. <laughs> it's like, he's putting himself right in the middle of it. And it's like, you know what? There's, there's some courage there that I hadn't appreciated before. Because screaming is obnoxious, and he's obviously completely out of his depth, but he's he's still there. But in the end, he's a journalist through and through. What kind of journalist? We don't really know. But <laughs> he's going to do whatever it is that he does to the best of his ability. You talk about journeys. I mean, he certainly takes us on one. And from the moment we get him, and he's dressing down Corbin to try to have more than a two-word vocabulary... He wants his show and his performance to be graded on a green scale. But then he, he surprises you. Like you said, Brian, there is some unseen depths of, of courage there. He takes the stones. When Corbin puts the gun on his hand, he tells him to, to hold it against the Mangalore. His, his hand's shaking. He's like, Corbin, I got a headache, my man. This isn't me. But he still does it. Yeah. When he has the stones shoved into his arms and says, you watch these with your life, he does. Even though he follows after Corbin several steps behind after Corbin has paved the way with explosions and bullets, he still follows. He doesn't know what's going on. He has no clue what this is all about, 
but he, he gets the sense that this is something important and I'm going to follow until it's all over with. And then Billy scares like, ah, what's the matter with you screaming like that? I'm out of here. Every second, it's like a bomb or something. <laughs> but he does wait until it's clear that the threat is over before he, he does uh, before he bizzes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and I, that's also another thing that I think is great is that it's clear that the business is to buzz off. <laughs> it just seems to follow. I, I've got to wonder how much of that was Chris Tucker improvising and seeing just how over the top he could be. That's a great question. I mean, one way or the other, his timing in this is impeccable. Like whether this mm-hmm. was all scripted or whether this was all him, his beats are always on. Uh, mm-hmm. And to be able to to pull that off on screen, I think, is really something. And his performance and the, his his walkthrough uh, show, and how much frustration you can see on his face when things aren't going exactly the way he thinks they ought to go. And yet, he's got two levels of performance: the mm. Ruby Rod performance, and then that frustration that he's showing that's not coming out in his voice. It's just all in his face. It was really, really well acted. Yeah. Although the one bit of this movie that I did find completely unbelievable is that in 300 years, for some reason, radio is radio is still one of the primary ways people get their information. Hey, look, as as somebody who really likes the audio formats, let's the three of us hope that this lasts just a little while longer. That's because when you're doing uh, faster than light communication, you don't have enough bandwidth for video. There you go. You know what? If they can't have that figured out in 300 years, then really, what are we doing in space? I mean, cruises and opera shows? Oh, you're not wrong there. All right. Do we have anything we want to say about Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg? Just that Oldman is so good. He's so good. I wonder a a little bit about the history of this character, because I can't think that he has become this super billionaire, trillionaire, whatever it is he is through his own intelligence, because he gets fooled by the same trick twice. (laughs) After getting an empty box, you would think finding another box, he would open it up there to make sure that the stones were in it. His dad handed him a very successful company, which he proceeded to run into the ground. Clearly. Well, not too much, because he is selling weapons, and that seems to be a pretty hot ticket in this future. (laughs) (laughs) To quote Star Trek, no one ever went broke selling weapons. And you have to admit, as far as like snappy writing and dialogue and good editing and timing, the whole ZF-1 weapons presentation is pretty good. It was fabulous. My favorite. (laughs) Again, part of the regular vernacular. I I had not realized until I rewatched this how many things that come up as reprises in my house are references to this film. (laughs) I had to rewind and pause a couple of times during the scene between him and Cornelius, where he's doing the whole chain of life speech. And he starts to choke on a cherry as he's like hitting buttons on his desk and more things start to pop up in compartments. We see magazines and then like CDs shoot out. I'm like, why are you still using CDs and a whole rack of leisure shirts um, for really bad tuxes? are flying up as well and then like up comes his pet blurg that's not the name of it but it's what i've named it and i've decided (laughs) that's canon 
you look at that animal like, yeah, that's a blurg. Right. It's a blurg now. Clearly. And <laughs> so many little details that give you some insight into the person and mindset of Zorg. I mean, yeah, he's decorated his office with all sorts of weird weapons. Have you noticed that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've looked at them all generally. Okay. How does that even... Where do you... What is... Nope, 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 nope. Don't do that. I can't help it, and it hurts. (laughs) (laughs) Not all of them are made for human biology. There you go. That's the only thing I could think of. That one must be a Sith land for rockets for the left hand. Oh my gosh, they actually gave that office elephant thing its its own species, apparently. That's just what I was looking up to. Suleiman Actopan. Yeah, your your Picasso. Your blurg. It actually got a name. I don't care what they call it. It's a blurg. It's, it's a blurg. Gotcha. No, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> We've already established this podcast determines canon. Right. It is a blurg. Wait, what was it that they called it again? Its, it's name was Solomon Actopan, but its species... That's the name of the species. Okay. Let's see. Its, it's the... name is Picasso. Uh, okay. Uh, moving on. Are we seeing different uh, sources? Nope. Uh, it's disagreeing with neither Picasso's name nor his species are mentioned in the film, but both can be found in the script, which I just so happen to have in front of me. <laughs> I... Do not have the script in front of me. <laughs> if there's nothing else that we wanted to say about our sometimes limps with the right leg, sometimes his left leg, villain Zorg. <laughs> I, Did he? I didn't notice yeah, that. It took me a moment watching like as he's walking down, he's telling his underling to fire a million cab drivers. He's limping on one leg. And then like, wait, that's the same. Did he switch legs? Isn't there a hump on the other side? <laughs> <laughs> Well, did we have any final thoughts on this movie? Uh, I think this is one of those films that we could do for probably three or four hours, but... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like we said earlier, if any of you out there have not seen it, stop what you're doing, go on Hulu, and watch it. If you have a friend who has not seen it, get them to your house and make them watch it. (laughs) Multipass. Well, that will take us to our zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, how are we going to keep from becoming meat popsicles? (laughs) Well, sometimes the best strategy is to outsource to the most experienced professionals. And this time I'm hiring two booby trap home defense specialists. I'm hiring Alan McAllister for his creative antics in Home Alone, tempered with Nancy Thompson's utter brutal lethality displayed at the end of Nightmare on Elm Street. With this team, I think that we can turn any home into a jury-rigged abode of death and destruction for the undead. And I can sleep easy in my bed. (laughs) My only fear would be getting up in the middle of the night to get a glass of water. No, don't do that. (laughs) No. Like, you put two Nalgene's by your bed. You, You have the blue one and the yellow one. One if you're thirsty, and then the yellow one. Ah, gotcha. (laughs) Well, that is going to wrap it up for this episode. I should mention, we forgot to do it earlier, but guys, this is our 50th episode. Yay! Happy 50! Yay! (laughs) I have confetti here. Who's going to clean this up? I guess it's just me. Okay. Wow, that was ill-conceived for an audio-only medium. (laughs) Well, everyone, we want to thank you for uh, being with us for all of these episodes. I mean, I forget what year we started doing this. It was a long time ago. Yes, it was. I'm still enjoying it. 
so much. I love getting on here and hanging out with you guys and talking about all the geeky things that I wish we could talk about in person. So here's to 50 more. Hooray! Make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekatarms. And Mike, what's our Twitter? We are ArmsGeek on Twitter. Give us a like, subscribe to us if you would. Leave us a review as well. It really helps the podcast. And as always, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. Can we talk about Lilumini Lectaria about Lamina? I stumbled. Lilumini Lectariaba. Lectariaba. Lilumini Lectariaba Lumini. Lilumini Lectariaba Lumini Chai Ekta Depsabat.